Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We are going, Mark chapter 4 ends with one of the most famous stories in the Bible. When it's famous, you can find posters of it. You can find multiple sermon clips online. And when I say multiple, I mean hundreds if not thousands of these. Uh, and it is the story of Jesus calming the sea. How many of you are familiar with that? Peace be still. Everybody's familiar. The kids are familiar. We're all familiar. As I have said a million times, and I'll say it another million times, the danger of biblical familiarity is the mistaken belief that you already get it. When everybody this afternoon that's going to eat lunch and sit before maybe some chicken, which you've had how many times before? Hundreds if not thousands. Nobody ever approaches that meal and says, I'm familiar with this. I know what it tastes like. Therefore, I'll just smell it from a distance and be distracted by stuff going on outside. That is not what you do with a meal. You eat it. In fact, some of us have favorite foods that we eat over and over. And the Bible describes its own self as food. And so this is a meal that you may be familiar with, but you should not assume that you don't need it or you can't hear what it's saying. The other danger of a familiar passage of Scripture is having an application for it or you heard a really good sermon on it and, and we think we know what it means. Um, and so we can miss what God may be trying to feed us with in this moment. The other issue really with biblical interpretation is that um, it's not malleable. It's not a wax nose. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? In other words, the Scripture means what the Scripture means. It's not, well, it means to me this. Or it means to me that. It doesn't really matter, and I mean this respectfully, it really doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what God meant it to mean. Right? Here's a great example, if, and I've used this before, but just bear with me. If driving 35 miles an hour through, uh, well, then let's not do that. Let's go to Hanging Rock, Ohio. Everybody know where Hanging Rock, Ohio is? How many, why are you laughing? Because you already know the reputation of Hanging Rock, Ohio, right? Everybody understands that if you go 55 miles an hour plus one millisecond faster, you're going to see red and blue lights and they're going to pull you over. 56 is too fast. You're reckless and endangering the public and you're going to get a ticket because for whatever reason, Hanging Rock has that reputation. Well, I know the reason because... If you drive through Hanging Rock, somebody's pulled over. So, if you told the police officer that you interpreted 55 miles an hour today the way it feels to me, is that first five kind of looks like a nine. So, uh, to me, today, it's 95. You know how that would go. It doesn't matter how you feel about it or how you interpret it. It's 55. It means something. The law means it 
to mean something. So scripture is similar. Not that it can't feed us in new ways. Not that it can't provide fresh insight because it does. But it means what it means. And I believe this morning what it means, and I'll tell you up front, I'll reveal everything at the front of the sermon, it's not about us learning uh, or overcoming the storms in our life, even though that certainly applies. That is a meaning that is clear in the text. But the real meaning is a big, giant spotlight on Jesus. That is what we want to look at this morning. Okay, let's read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Starting with verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the wind and the sea do obey you. You are the king of the universe. There's nothing outside of your control. There is nothing outside of your hand. There's nothing outside of your timing. Nothing. You're in charge. Nothing is greater than you. Nothing is stronger than you. Nothing is better than you. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see your greatness and that you would help me communicate it today in a way that is helpful. Lord, we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's remember where we are leading into this. Jesus has just spent some time, the day, this very day, giving parables of the kingdom. He's taught on the parable of the sower, and then he talks about a parable like the kingdom is, is a lamp not to be put under a lampstand. He talks about it as, um, as a mustard seed that grows. He talks about it as a man that plants the seed and overnight it begins to grow over a period of time. He's been talking uh, to these big crowds of people around the Sea of Galilee about the kingdom of God. He's been talking to them in parables and he says at the very end uh, of 33 and 34, it says the people were not getting the full meaning of the parables, but in private Jesus is explaining everything to the disciples, and that is what he's doing. Crowds, miracles, teaching, and he's out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee because there's so many people that he had to go out there to create an amphitheater effect. And then you notice that it says um, that verse 39, leaving the crowd, they took him, took him with them in the boat just as he was. It's one of those interesting little details it's so one of the reasons we know that this is probably an eyewitness account. Mark is typically a little shorter in the way it explains the stories. 
but this is one of the stories where you get extra details, like just as he was, and there were other boats with him. I don't know if you noticed that when I read it. It's not just one boat that's going to go across the Sea of Galilee. It's multiple boats. So, multiple boats. Jesus just had taught to a big crowd. He's already out on the water using it as a stage. And they decide they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about 7, 8 miles wide. So it is a large freshwater lake. The fishing there is awesome still to this day. To this day, this sea, that's really a giant lake, it provides 50% of the fresh water to Israel to this very day. It is a really important uh, part of the commerce of the area. And here's something really, really cool about the Sea of Galilee I did not know. It is the lowest level freshwater lake in the world. And it flows out of the southern tip. Uh, the River Jordan flows down into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest saltwater area in the world. So it's really low below sea level, about 700 feet below, surrounded by mountains. And this creates something really unique. Um, well, not unique weather pattern-wise, but to this little area, the wind typically in the afternoon swirls around those mountains, hits the Sea of Galilee, and if you're going to have a storm, nine times out of ten, you are going to have the storm in the afternoon. You are not going to have it at night, which is why these guys keep fishing at night. Have you noticed the frequency by which they fish at night? Peter, when he has his issue of not catching any fish, he says, I was fishing all night. Now, they fish during the day, but typically it was calm at night. That's when they did their fishing. So taking a trip across the sea to the other side at night makes sense because there's not going to be usually a fear of storms. Except that is not what happens in this story. What happens in this story is a great windstorm arose. In verse 37. Now, this is where I need some kids' help. So who wants to volunteer? So I need four kids. So I need Arwen, since she's my daughter, she has no choice. Sure. Come on up. You want to come? Ellie, you want to come? Okay, so we got two boys, two girls. Okay, so. All right. You can stand right Stand right here. Okay, now you can face everybody there. All right, now you stand right here. Right here, like right here. Okay. Now, Ellie, you come over here. Come stand right here. And now, Arwen, you come over here. Okay, you stand right here. All right. Now, everybody can see them, right? This is the size of the boat, okay? Now, if you just draw in your mind, maybe it's easier for me standing up here, but if you just draw with your mind the shape of a boat, it's, this is 27 feet by 8 feet. 
this is the boat size that was used in, in the Sea of Galilee. And here's what's cool. In 1986, they dug up a boat at the bottom of the sea, and they, it was from the first century. So it was the same kind of boat that the disciples would have used that Jesus would have been on. For all we know, it could have been one that he was on, or it had been really cool. Of course, that would create it. Anyway, um, this, is this, this is about the size of the boat. Now, I don't know if all of the disciples were in the boat, but this is the size of it. It's not all that huge, is it? To go across a 13-mile lake, probably not that big of a deal. It had a mast, it had a sail, it had a place for four different oars, so it was either by, uh, it was either by sail or by oar that they went across, and Jesus is in the stern. So if this is the front, which I believe is called the... I forget what the front's called. The back is called the stern, right? The bow. Gosh, brain totally went blank. So Jesus, let's say this is the back and this is the front. Jesus is in the back of the boat and he's on a cushion. Mark is the only one that records the cushion, which again tells us this is probably a first-hand account, probably from Peter, because the way the story's told, yeah, we Jesus, just as he was, uh, he was already in the boat. He, we had pulled the boat out. He was talking. We decide to go across the sea uh, to the other side because Jesus has an assignment, which we're going to talk about next week. The wild man of Gadara and the demon-possessed guy is next week. That's where they're headed. And Jesus knows that. They don't, but Jesus does. Jesus is super tired. So back here with Ellie, he is in the, he's in the stern, and he lays down, and he goes to sleep because he is tired. He is worn out. He's fully God, but he is fully man. And so they get in the boat, and I, I like seeing the kids as an example. The boat starts going across a calm sea. And then you see what it says, that says in verse 37, a great windstorm comes in. So you can imagine a boat this size, in a, in a lake, and in Greek, the way the word great is, is mega. Anybody heard the word mega? So this is a mega windstorm. Now Jennifer, last night we were talking about this, and she said it was like a hurricane, and I said no, because it, it's a lake. But she's right, it was like a hurricane style, because coming in at night, totally different kind of storm, the waves on a lake coming in off this wind are just churning all over the place. So the boat is rocking back and forth, which says in verse 37, they were breaking into the boat. I haven't told you something really important. The depth of this boat is about this deep. So it feels like a glorified canoe to me. It's about four and a half to five feet tall. So this boat, the water is coming in, and it's rocking back and forth. And think about the guys that are in the boat. It's, it's not a bunch of white-collar workers who are scared. These are men that when they reach out, you see the scars of fishnets and fishhooks. These are guys whose skin is totally sunburnt and baked, from living outside, working with the sea, working with the fish. These are hardworking sailors. 
they know what they're doing, and they are scared. What does that tell you? When the guy that knows what he's doing is scared, that's a, cl that's a clue for everybody else to be like, ooh, the expert's afraid. Well, then this is not good. This is not good at all. And Jesus is in the back of the boat, back here with Ellie, and he is asleep because he's exhausted. And he's something else. Unconcerned. The waves are coming into the boat. Now, I don't know how he stayed asleep. Well, yes, I do. Because I have a very special and unique gift. It's not mentioned in the Bible, but I can sleep anywhere, anytime, under any circumstance. Anybody, how many of you were with me in Haiti? How many of you were on that trip? Anybody in this room? When we went to Haiti, they, all, they took pictures and laughed because I was banging my head around off the back of this uh, truck as we're driving with no shocks and ruts this big, and I was asleep. So it's a gift, and I'm thankful for it. So Jesus is asleep. He's in the back of the boat, and the disciples are scared. The disciples who are also fishermen who know how to handle a boat. Now keep in mind the other boats are there with them, right? So you got other boats over here, and your friends are probably yelling. You can barely hear each other because of the wind and the waves. It's dark, it's scary, and Jesus is asleep in the back on a cushion. The disciples come to him and say, Don't you care that we are perishing? Now that'll preach a sermon, won't it? Do I even need to preach a sermon on that? We can recognize our own self in the moment. So I get why this sermon or this passage of Scripture is very popular for sermons because it's true. We as human beings frequently go to God and say, Where are you? Don't you see the storm? And he's asleep. And he wakes up and he says, Peace, be still. Some translations use the word hush. Be quiet. Be still. And immediately, everything stops. That's the king of the universe standing up in the boat with the disciples telling the storm to stop. Alright, you guys can go sit down. Give them a hand, please. It says, this great windstorm rose, breaks into the boat, they wake him, teacher, you see that we're perishing. He awoke, he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, he spoke right to the sea and told it to be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So there was a great mega windstorm. And now the exact same word, Mark uses it again and says, there was a mega calm. Now think about the use of that language. He is intentionally trying to say, listen, this thing was crazy. 
And when Jesus told it to be quiet, He rebukes the sea, He tells the wind to cease, it all just stops. Normally, if you were... Has anybody ever been to the wave pool in Hurricane? Has anybody ever seen how those things work? When they shut the thing off, does the water just flatten out? Or does it go, it takes a while to calm down? If Jesus, if a storm stopped, it would, uh, it would still take some time to calm down. This just says, peace be still, the wind ceased, and there was mega calm. Mark is wanting you to see that when Jesus said stop, it just stopped. This was, this was miraculous, obviously. This was incredible. This is something nobody had ever seen before. The reason that it's so important is, I want to read you what the disciples, as good students of the Bible, they would have known about the storms and about the sea. In Psalm 65, verses 5-8, through 8, it says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the end of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening the shout for joy. Who is calming the roaring of the sea? God does. In Psalm 107, it says, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. So who brought the storm in and lifted up the waves? God commanded it. Who's in charge of the sea? God is in charge of the sea. It goes on and says, He made the storm be still. God brought the storm up and God put the storm down. And the waves of the sea were hushed. The disciples, there's a lot more in Amos chapter 4, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. God is in charge of the weather. To quote the great lyricist and poet Dirt, on the album Mustard Seed, man's pen writes the almanac, but God writes the weather. That's You can go look that up somewhere on Apple Music. God is in charge of the weather. There are so many verses in the Old Testament, it would take a long time to read them. He stores up in heaven storehouses of snow. I hope He sends us a bunch this year. I like it. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He causes it to rain. God is sovereign over the planet. Not the devil. Not mankind. God is. This earth will not last one millisecond longer than God wants it to. God will bring the consummation of the age the very moment that He has intended it from all of history. God is in charge of the planet. Now, 
knowing this, reading this from the Old Testament, for Jesus to stand up in the boat and say, peace, be still, and there was a mega calm. What would you think? How would you feel? One, you would feel relieved, right? You would feel relieved because the boat was rocking back and forth and there's water in it and you're drenched and you're terrified because you know as a sailor in that little boat that we are going to be capsized. We're too far out in the middle of the lake and with the waves like this, we're not going to survive. We're going to drown. We're going to die. And this great calm comes over the sea. Look at verse 40. And in that moment, so we've got sailors that were scared that are now on a mega calm. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? (laughs) Jesus talks this way to his disciples all the time. All the time they're hearing this throughout his ministry. You have little faith. You have little faith. You have little faith. Do you not know who I am? The point of this story is for the disciples and for us to see who was in that boat was the one who created the sea, the one who created the winds, the one who's in charge of them. They recognize His voice when He tells it to stop. It does. If you would just recognize is what He's saying, if, don't you realize I'm here? Don't you realize who I am? Their question to him was, don't you care that we're perishing? His response to them, why are you afraid? Now look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, if you go back up to verse 38, where they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're, they're afraid here. But in verse 41, it says, They were filled with mega fear. We've got three megas in this text there is a mega windstorm. There is a mega calm, and there is a mega fear. They were afraid for their life in the storm. This is a whole different kind of fear. Again, how would you feel as a Jewish sailor fisherman that understands that only God is in charge of the sea, and in this boat the teacher, the rabbi, who you believe to be the Messiah, shows that it's way deeper than you think. This Messiah is God in the flesh, in my boat. And what is man's reaction when we get close to God? It is not, hey pal. That is not the reaction that we have. When you look throughout Scripture, when men encounter God, they are terrified. 
Now all the kids are in here, right? We spend a lot of time trying to explain to them how this kind of stuff works when I'm not sure we ourselves understand it. So I want to read something from our good friend C.S. Lewis. How many of you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Raise your hand, or at least you've seen it. Everybody knows that C.S. Lewis meant for Aslan to be a representation of Jesus, right? We all, you know that. If you didn't know that, there's the spoiler. In the scene where the beavers are explaining to the children who Aslan is as the king, the lion, Mrs. Beaver is describing him as the lion. And Susan, the intellectual one, says, this is the last thing Mrs. Beaver says, she says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Kids, would you like to meet a lion? Yes, we all, right, all the boys are like, yes. I would have said the same thing. But if a lion was just let loose in the room, what do you think we would all do? We would all kill each other as we climbed out the doors trying to escape. As long as I can outrun the slowest one in here, then I'm fine, right? Is that kind of what happens in your brain? <laughs> this is whoever's, okay. So we would like to meet a lion under controlled conditions. But if a lion was just plopped down in the middle of this floor and it roared, I promise you, not only would you need to go home and change your clothing, you would just hope to get out to change it. And that is what Susan is saying. She says, I'd feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis does such a good job in that book of describing the sensation of the kids when they meet Aslan because they are drawn to him and terrified at the same time. Drawn in and scared. And if that does not describe the relationship that humanity has with God, I don't know anything better than that description. Here, you see the great mega fear that comes on them as they realize there is a lion in the boat. The king of the universe is in the boat with us. The king! And they are afraid. They were scared of the storm. But that only kills you. To fall into the hands of the living God. We are not dealing with death or pain. We are dealing with eternity. And the disciples in that moment feel it just like we would if Jesus was here and made Hurricane Ida stop. And you, you were there when He told it to and it just stopped. Not the fake TV preacher kind that's out there that supposedly you can control the weather. It is a load of hogwash. Do not listen to people like that at all. They do not have control over the weather. God did not grant you control over the weather. He has control over the weather. 
And Jesus demonstrates that here, which is why the disciples are afraid, just like we would be afraid if a lion were here. But what if he's good? Which he is. It draws us in to him. The disciples don't run away when they get on the other side of the boat or the other side of the lake. When the boat lands in chapter 5, they're met by a demon-possessed guy. And Jesus is going to do another miracle. Every day with Jesus, these disciples are seeing incredible miracles. But this miracle in particular absolutely made them have mega fear. It's not a bad fear. It is the kind of fear that draws us in. It's the kind of fear that causes us to tremble at our own sin. When Isaiah meets God in his vision in Isaiah 6, which we talked about last week, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I said to him, said, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips amongst an unclean people. He experienced that fear. The point of this text is to point us to Jesus. And yes, you should extrapolate out of this. If Jesus is with you, if Jesus is with you, you do not need to be afraid of storms. Because Amos tells me that he brings the winds up and brings the winds down. If Jesus is with you in your life in the boat, so to speak, then you should have faith in him. You should have trust in him. You should not be afraid. Because he is the Lord of everything. Holiness. The holiness of God, the other than us of God, is what you're seeing here. That sensation that people get exposed to God. Has anybody ever had it? Where you had this strange encounter, it could have happened at church, it could have happened in a weird moment where you almost had a car wreck, and it's almost like this eerie sensation of God protected me. Has anybody ever had these experiences? And it causes you to say, oh my gosh, God is watching over me. The Bible says it's His goodness that leads us to repentance. His severity and His goodness The way I think you should walk away from this is that this is the kind of thing that does feed our faith is recognizing that God is with us no matter what. But the point of this moment in this miracle is to focus the reader of the book of Mark on the reality that God is among His people in this earthly ministry. And these little breakout miracles demonstrate who He is. If you're a Christian this morning, you are serving the King of Kings, 
who is ruler over waves and sea and storms and trials and sicknesses and pandemics and whatever else is going on in the world, this massive surge, this storm surge coming into churches, trying to create disunity and disruption and frustrations over vaccines and over everything else, all of this stuff, we need our eyes on Christ. We need our eyes on Him. We don't need to pretend we're not in the world. We're in the boat. We're in it. But we need to focus on the fact that in this present world, Jesus is with us. And He's going to help us love each other, speak kindly to one another. He's going to help us to endure problems. You may be losing a job. You may be afraid of losing a job. Your marriage may be falling apart. Your marriage may be on the verge of falling apart. You don't yet know it. You may be living in sin and you are being convicted and you need to repent and come out. Wherever you are in this moment, Jesus, who calms storms, Jesus, who makes mega calm, also creates mega fear. But it's a good fear that draws us to Him to want more, not to run away. It's not a fear, scared of the dark fear. It's a fear of, oh my goodness, He's bigger than I thought. He's more awesome than I thought. He's more holy than I thought. He's more loving than I thought. He's more overwhelming than I thought. We get to heaven like John, his best friend on the earth. John, you know what happens to John in the book of Revelation? He falls on his face when he sees Jesus. His best friend on earth, just the vision of his glory revealed, he is terrified on his face. But he doesn't run away. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the king. But his love and his fear, this mega fear, is not something that pushes you away. It's something that draws us in. Satan has this weird thing where you encounter that holiness and the sin in your life has this reaction like Adam and Eve, you want to run away. Don't run away. Run to him and embrace him. Don't run from him. Run to him. Whatever your struggle, whatever's going on, whatever the sin, whatever the problem, the conflict, whatever it is, run to Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand up. I want you to bow your head with me in prayer. Father, the rest of this psalm says, then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, 
for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God, as we leave this morning, I pray that our hearts would overflow with joy at your steadfast love and the craving, that desire to know you, Lord, that mega fear in your presence, Lord. God, I pray that we would be people that love you and fear you, that know you are good, know you are not safe, but your goodness and your mercy overflow and abound. God, I pray that we would be people that are sober in our thinking and in our judgments and that we would live righteous lives before you, that we would shine like lights in a dark place, that we would be lamps of the kingdom shining on top of a hill. Let us be that at work. Let us be that at home. Let us be that in our marriages to our spouses. Let us help each other and love each other. Help us to be people in the boat together, serving you, knowing you're in the boat with us. King of the universe, in the middle of all the storms. But you are the king over storms. We thank you for that, Lord. God, be with us this week. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us insight in everything we're doing. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.